Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we have with us today for our usual Friday segment, Your State You, with Max Page, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, a very special guest and a very special occasion and event that we want you to know about. Max Page, the microphone is yours. Good morning, Buzz. Good morning, Bill. I am really pleased to be here today, especially to welcome um, Kelly Ray Adams, an artist who has a long-term installation at Mass MoCA, and there is an event next Friday, April 14th at 4.30, in which we, that is advocates for public higher education, the artist Kelly Adams, and many other participants will be there to talk about how we build a debt-free future in Massachusetts, something we've been talking about a lot on this show. But sometimes it takes an artist to actually capture the both the depth of the problem we have of student debt and to point us in the direction of solutions. So Kelly Ray Adams, thank you so much for being here this morning. Thank you so much for having me. So your piece, which is on view, has been on view for many months now and will be on, has been just extended um, through the fall of 2023, is at Mass MoCA. Um, and could you talk to us a little bit about, tell us the title and tell us the irony in that title. It's Forever in Your Debt. And then tell us what it looks like because Mass MoCA has these amazing <laughs> installations and yours, I'm sure, is a very large installation because that is what Mass MoCA is known for. And by the way, congratulations. Indeed. Mass MoCA does not, as a regular matter, extend exhibits. They have got to love yours and the public has got to love yours because, well, part of Mass MoCA is how many people are coming to see it. And that means a lot and that means it's terrific. But tell us what it looks like. Sure. Thanks so much. Uh, yeah, it's been uh, such a delight and honor to have my work there. Um, the installation is essentially um, a collection of 30, or, sorry, 925 handmade uh, ceramic bowls, um, which is hypothetically enough bowls to hold the average student debt burden in the form of coins. Um, so I had this vision a number of years ago, back in the fall of 2012. Um, it took a long time to bring it into being, uh, needless to say. but. Um, but I really wanted to physicalize the, the magnitude of this burden. Uh, initially, I had this idea with respect to my own student debt total. Um, and then when I, when I actually set about making this project, I decided that I would pin it instead to the average individual debt total because I felt like that spoke more to the, the collective issue and the, the systemic nature of this problem. Where'd you go to college? How much debt did you have? So if you I don't actually, mind my asking, uh, and even if you do a little this, bit. Well, I think this is a pertinent question, uh, given the, the focus here on public higher education. So I went to Duke University as an undergrad. Uh, I grew up in Danville, Virginia, which sits right on the border between uh, Virginia and North Carolina. So only about 45 minutes away from Durham. Um, I had applied to the University of Virginia as well, which would have been my in-state school. But in the end, for me, it was gonna cost the same amount for me to attend UVA as it was gonna cost um, sort of out of pocket for me to attend Duke because Duke was offering me a very large merit scholarship. So in my case, I was gonna be on the hook no matter what uh, for $35,000 um, at the end of my education. So I decided, given that, that I would pursue um, the degree at Duke 
um, I graduated with that sum in debt, which is ironically very close to this average current total that I visualize in the installation. Um, I went to Japan and was teaching English there for three years, uh, during which time I actually managed to pay off uh, that $35,000 debt. Um, but then uh, years later, I wanted to uh, or felt it was uh, necessary to attend grad school uh, to pursue a career in the arts. Um, and so I did that and incurred another large debt um, at the Rhode Island School of Design. So you are a uh, ceramicist? I mean, you, you mean that that's your art form? You made 900 and however many bowls it is? You made them all? You, 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 you uh, painted them? You, 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 you put them in kilns? Really? Absolutely, yes. Um, and it's, it's, it's a stunning very, thing. Um, I, I will say, looping back to what I just said, um, you know, interestingly, it was it was while I was in Japan, you know, really, um, you know, working to pay down this debt that I that I bumped into uh, ceramics. I had never, I even though I had studied art um, as it, I, one of my majors in in undergrad, um, I also I, I had never worked with clay. I had mostly been working with metals and sculpture in undergrad. Again, I wasn't so naive to think that I could uh, have a career in the arts. Um, you know, so I, I felt this need to have a double major to pursue something else as well. Studied Spanish with the thought that I would perhaps like uh, pursue international relations or something of that nature, uh, which is why it also then seemed um, sort of wise to acquire another language, uh, you know, by virtue of going to Japan and teaching there. But instead, what I found in Japan was the beautiful ceramic traditions, and they really uh, grabbed me by the arm and would not let go. Um, and so, I mean, I, I took to it immediately um, and and really, you know, while I was there, was in, enmeshed in a very deep study of ceramics with my teacher. Um, but yes, to answer your question, every bit of the labor in this project is my own in terms of the production of those pieces. This, um, this is, I'm sorry, We're, Kelly Ray. Um, this is yeah. Buzz. And I'm so excited that you're on the program this morning because I saw this exhibit. I stood for a very long time and I noticed the bowls are beautiful and in their simplicity, but they're red, but they're obscured by the, the red is obscured by the coins that are, that are in it. Why did you paint them red? And what's the symbolism there, if any? Yes, uh, good question. Uh, so they are glazed, the interior only uh, is glazed uh, with a red glaze. Uh, I decided to go with that because, um, you know, red is a signifier of, of debt uh, in, in ledgers and in accounting, and it felt um, appropriate to me that the interiors be glazed red such that as the bowls are slowly filled with change, and I am accumulating this amount um, that slowly that visual uh, signifier of debt is being minimized. Um, I will mention here um, that I, I don't know when you when you went to the January. To the museum bus. January. January of this year. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, so when they when the installation was installed, there were only about fifty of those bowls that were filled with change. Um, and as you saw, uh, probably a year later, um, it's it's now about halfway full. Um, and I am I am crowdsourcing that change uh, from visitors. So anybody who it's a collaborative, uh, participatory project uh, again with this sort of intention of speaking to the 
the collective nature of this problem and the fact that it's something that we all have to address together. Um, I'm inviting people who come to bring their households fair change. Uh, if it's enough mixed change to fill one of the bowls, they are registered to receive one at the end of the project. So it's also um, an aspect of my creative practice that I'm always thinking about how the work will live after the museum. Um, and in this case, the bowls will, the work itself will in some sense disappear as a whole uh, because it will go out into the homes of all of those who have contributed. Um, and in that way, I also hope serve as an ongoing reminder um, that this is something that we really should be um, considering <clears throat> how to how to make access to education uh, much more uh, affordable. Uh, Kelly Ray Adams, 930 plus bowls that you created and, and uh, uh, put into a kiln, I take it. And where mm -hmm. do you do this? Uh, and how long did it take? Gosh, well, it took a... Uh, as I said, it took a number of years to even get to the point of beginning work on the project. Um, so I had the idea in the fall of 2012. Um, I had been with a friend who has a, a ceramic studio uh, and a wood kiln, which is something that um, for me, I associate with, with pottery. Um, I had sort of in the years prior to that been making more sculpture work, but I, because I was here and had access to this wood kiln, I started making bowls and cups and functional vessels again. Um, and, uh, you know, it was in that moment, I think because of that really, that I had this idea. Uh, but it took, it wasn't until the fall of 2018 um, that I was awarded a fellowship uh, in Washington, D.C. through an organization called Halcyon uh, that enabled me to really devote a an extended period of time to this work and to start production. So some some production. some years, how many years? Uh, well, so that- From so the that, first time you put yeah. your hands in the clay until you put the installation at Mass Mocha, how long? Good question. Uh, so 2019 fall uh, was the beginning and I, and I installed it at Mass Mocha in the beginning of 2022. Okay, so we, we promised at the beginning that Mac, Max Page was here, and then we commandeered the microphones, and I suppose we should allow <laughs> Max, Max to say something. It is his segment. Okay, so briefly, Max, what do you have to say? In honor of Passover, why is this Friday the same as all the other Fridays? <laughs> uh, so, no, thanks, Bill. So we're talking to, just so everyone, listeners know, we're talking to Kelly Ray Adams, who is an artist who has a long-term installation piece um, forever in your debt at Mass Mocha, and she will be there next Friday between uh, 4.30 and 6 for an event we're having as part of the Higher Ed for All campaign um, to talk about how we get to student, the end of student debt. And I just want to emphasize there are these 925 bowls, they will be filled with, uh, they are being filled and getting close to being filled with coins that once it's filled, as I understand it, that will represent these 925 bowls filled with a random mix of change, that entire room will represent the average for one person's graduate student debt of $37,000. Undergrad correct? debt. Undergrad That's debt. Undergrad debt. That's undergrad grad, debt only. Grad debt is actually closer to $70,000 on average. So you can do the, the right. mental mapping then of doubling that <laughs> as you stand and look at exactly. it. Exactly. So one undergrad debt average debt and there are 1.7 trillion dollars of student debt in this country affecting 44 million students and in massachusetts 
we have some of the most rapid rising student debt in the country. That is what's behind the Higher Ed for All campaign and the Cherish Act, which would guarantee all residents a debt-free public higher education. So that's why this is such an important moment. And sometimes, as I've said, that it is the statistics, you know, you can listen for a second, but you quickly forget them. But if you view this artwork, you will not forget that what the, the scope of this, this is the, the work that was put in to produce these, these, um, these bowls and the amount of money for just one undergraduate person's uh, debt burden. So I think it's really a powerful, a powerful installation. And you've been there a number of times, Kelly Adams. You, it's sort of unusual. You didn't just install this and disappear. In fact, you've been there a number of times to be part of this. Tell yes. us what that's been like as you encounter visitors. Well, uh, yeah, it came about, honestly, um, sort of spontaneously to some extent. My presence initially was about this kind of um, exchange moment that would occur with visitors uh, showing up with their change. And then the, the longer I was there, the more I realized just how rich um, the, the space was that we were creating by virtue of, you know, me being present in the gallery, kind of holding a conversational space for this issue. Um, and being able to really interact with visitors and share stories and um, and just you know receive their responses in real time. It's something I think as an artist that that has <clears throat> come to uh, my attention that is often you know we make things and we situate them in space and and walk away and I and don't really fully understand or get to experience the the impact. And I think with this particular work, it felt very important to in some sense facilitate uh, this, you know, the reception of this work because I think it can be so emotional for people. Um, so I, I was there almost every weekend from, from let's, I think June until the end of the year, last year. Um, and I will actually be returning this summer as well. And I will be in the galleries most weekends during June and July and August. One quick observation that I can't wait to see the exhibit. I am a member of Mass Smoke. I'm jealous that Buzz has already seen it. I can't wait to do it. And what it's what strikes me as you've been speaking is what it would mean to our communities, our lives, our economy, if instead of that money going to banks, it went into housing, it went into cars, it went into uh, uh, all sorts of things that could enhance our economy and our communities instead of the banks. Which is why, Bill, Senator, Senator Elizabeth Warren saw this exhibit, and she talked about the important nexus between policy and art that, that it represents. So thank you, Kelly Ray Adams. One more time, Max. When is the event? Yes, you, you have a chance to both exceed the exhibition and meet the artist Kelly Ray Adams next Friday, April 14th at Mass Mocha, 4.30 to, to 6 p.m. as part of the Higher Ed for All debt-free future campaign. Can I just pipe in and say that admission is free that afternoon as well for, for, for folks the who most are important the event. We, so we buried the lead. Oh, no. Admission it's free? free? You get to go to Mass Smoker for free? Oh, my goodness. Wow. And you get to walk away with a piece of the exhibit for wow. just 40 bucks or something. Well, the, the, the bowls don't get sent out until the very end of the project, so it's a long-term exchange. It'll probably be two or three years exactly. before it gets oh, okay. sent out. But... <laughs> okay, 4 to 30 next Friday at Mass Mocha, the Higher Ed for All Coalition with artist Kelly Ray Adams. Thank you, Kelly, so much. And Max, for bringing Kelly. Really, what a pleasure to have you both Thank on the you. show. Thank you.
Thanks so much. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. For the first time in the history of the country and of the history of the United States, the Supreme Court has taken away a constitutional right. I would also describe this day as a day when women in the United States and people who can become pregnant have become second-class citizens. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Looking for the perfect place to watch the game? Hi, I'm Caleb Hiliadis, head brewer of Amherst Brewing. Make the Hangar Pub and Grill your go-to spot to catch all the action this season. Our famous wings come with your choice of 26 flavors, and with 25 years of beer making experience, there's an Amherst Brewing beer for every drinker. Now that's a winning combo. Join us for weekly trivia nights in Amherst, Westfield, Agawam, South Hadley, and Greenfield. Visit HangarPub.com for more of what we have cooking and brewing today. For 50 years, the Center for Women and Community has provided trauma-informed leadership and advocacy services, including 24-hour free and confidential support for survivors and their loved ones throughout Hampshire County. April is National Sexual Assault Awareness Month. CWC is here for you. If you've been impacted by violence, call the Sexual Assault Support and Advocacy Hotline for information, support, and resources. Learn about volunteer and professional staff opportunities at umass.edu slash CWC. At Mountain View Farm in East Hampton, we have been growing beautiful, certified organic produce exclusively for our farm share members since we started. And we have been voted best local CSA in the Valley for the last 15 years running. Included in your weekly pickup, you can also enjoy our field of Yupik flowers and herbs all season long. And you can shop in our farm store, which features many wonderful local products. We offer shares for all size households. Sign up at mountainviewfarmcsa.com. Welcome to Salman Hamid's universe. Salman Hamid is a Hampshire College professor and astronomer who is with us every month. We really appreciate your being back again. Salman, thank you so very much. Very exciting news. Astronauts going back to the moon, a very different group of astronauts than what occurred during the Apollo program. I'd appreciate your perspective. Uh, thank you, Bill. And yes, I mean, it's a it's a big news. Uh, NASA just announced a crew of four astronauts that will be going, not landing on the moon, but sort of like circling around the moon. And that is part of the Artemis program, uh, Artemis 1. That was a test flight in some sense that did the same route and it came back and that was uncrewed. But now uh, there are four astronauts uh, that were just announced a couple of days ago Three are American and, well, included. One Canadian. Canadian I mean, that, that's still not that far. So, yeah. So, you know. Uh, so, anyway. So, yeah. So, there are four astronauts. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a very different, uh, in some sense, we have to say alongside with that, that it's a very different uh, selection crew criterion compared to the ones that were selected for the Apollo program, which were pretty much everybody was from the military and uh, they were all white. 
men or they were all men. So uh, there are a couple of boxes that you need to check in there. Well, you know, good good for NASA for doing this. Uh, when will this flight take place? It's un right now. It's unclear uh, likelihood that what they are shooting for is uh, end of next year, meaning to say December, like late twenty twenty four. But it can, of course, depends upon all the other factors. Uh, the test flight that had happened, they were overall it went okay, but there were some things that uh, they had to they have to fix, and so there are variations to that. But the expectation is that. This will take place sometime late 2024, and then if that one goes okay, then a human uh, landing on the moon again in 25, late 25 or 26. So this first flight on the Artemis program with human beings, well, sponsored by NASA, will circle the moon for how many times? How many days? Uh, I don't, I, I don't exactly know, but uh, I think the the idea is around a ten day mission, and this will be the farthest that humans uh, would have gone because uh, previously, so the, the the kind of orbit that Artemis will have, it will take them actually farther than up the Apollo uh, astronauts. So in some sense, you can argue that this is the farthest that astronauts will be going. And, uh, and and so yeah, so th- I think this is th- this is important, and uh, th- there is also a very deliberate emphasis on the international nature of the uh, of this uh, program. So it's not just NASA sending, but like as I mentioned, Canadian Space Agency is involved. So is European Space Agency, and so there is a a very deliberate effort that to show, uh, which can also be problematic, uh, like you know when uh, when we. And by we, I mean NASA or us in the U.S. <laughs> when you say that, we, you, know, you mean you and me and Buzz and NASA. Yeah. Okay, got it. Okay, we that, and that and, we are, and Dan, of course. Doing this, right, that that we are doing this for all humanity, or we are doing this for <laughs> uh, for mankind, or whatever. Like you know. So I think there are genuine critiques to take that as well, and uh, and I can come back to it, uh, like you know, about the ad that was. Sort of like you know, for the astronauts and things like that. Well, I want to I want to ask you about that. Um, I mean, I, I I mean, congratulations to NASA to having a diverse uh, by gender and by race uh, a group of astronauts going on this very important mission. Got that? There's a part of this story that worries me that you've touched on before, <clears throat> which is whether this is part of a new space race um, that has military and geopolitical implications. Uh, and I'm wondering if you could give us your perspective on that. The uh, United States Space Agency is not the only uh, uh, national space agency interested in going to the moon. China's very involved. So is Russia, as far as I know. The European space uh, agencies are involved. Tell us about whether or not this is something to be worried about as well as to celebrate. Yeah, so this and 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 I hate to do this. I mean, I absolutely because I love space and I love sort of like you know uh, thinking about humans going back to the moon, but I hate to bring this critical lens to it as well. And there are two things I'm going to mention. One is, and again, I think as you mentioned, person of color is in there. 
uh, a woman is also involved, which is great. But I hope there is more to that than just sort of like, you know, putting sort of like you know, these figures up there. And the reason is because Bill Nelson, who's the head of NASA, a former astronaut and a former U.S. senator as well, uh, he, the language he used was also about that we are frontiers people, right? I mean, so like that's the reason why we are going back to the moon and so on and so forth. And, and of course, within the context of the history of you uh, of sort of like you know the us with the indigenous populations here the frontier language trump and mike pence mike pence in particular had used two years ago explicitly manifest destiny for example talking about going to space so these are things where you have sort of like a little bit of red flags or maybe a little bit more than that and you go like wait a minute okay so what kind of things we are using and so if i can connect those dots to the fact that there are corporate cor uh, private uh, and uh, nasa collaboration in there but a lot of it is for mining a lot of it is for profits and so the way we are going it's i mean not that apollo mission was about science but at least there was some veneer there was some hope the only astronaut by the way that who was a scientist, the only scientist to land on the moon was in the last mission, Apollo 17, Harrison Schmidt. He was the only one. The others were actually military people. But nevertheless, there was pressure to send a scientist. And here, if you see the ad for the astronauts, for the Artemis II program where they announced the official NASA ad, it is not with those, you would expect it to be those sort of like, you know, uh, sounds that evoke wonder that like you know soft humming music rather it's like a sound from a marvel superhero film or something like that and it's like pretty jingoistic even though they are just introducing astronauts and in fact stephen colbert played that and he was very excited because these astronauts were in there and by the time the ad ended he was also like yeah let's kill the moon we are ready to kill the moon That's <laughs> well there. i don't think it's an accident that they called it artemis that is the greek goddess of the hunt who according to the mythology she could kill any prey that she wanted to any time she wanted to yeah and so i mean so, i don't so know how to put it to both of you how, both of you buzz and Salman, you guys are kind of bummers. I, you know, let me just let me be direct about this. <laughs> I know, and it again. Uh, all, all I'm trying to say is, I mean, I don't want, and I hated those people who did that, uh, like you know, that bringing everything down. But we have to be privy to the language being used and the kind of framing that is in there for responsible space exploration. A discussion will continue right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. More information is coming to light about the East Hampton superintendent candidate whose job offer was rescinded after he referred to two female school committee members in an email as ladies. School committee chair Cynthia Kwasinski said the committee already had concerns about offering Vito Perón the job, and the email sent by Perón during the negotiation process changed their decision. Perón had requested a cost-of-living increase, 30 vacation days, and 46 days every year, and in that message addressed Kwasinski and her assistant as ladies. The school committee chair told the Gazette she was insulted by the familiarity with which the candidate addressed her and the committee's executive assistant, and that his request for nearly 14 weeks of paid time off was unreasonable. 
Perone has said he never fully got the chance to negotiate the terms of his employment. A South Hadley man accused of killing his father and then trying to light his house on fire was arraigned in Hampshire Superior Court on Thursday. 35-year-old Craig Weiss pleaded not guilty to charges of murder and attempted arson. Weiss had already been arraigned on murder charges in December in Eastern Hampshire District Court. A pretrial hearing for the Hampshire Superior Court case is scheduled for July 18th. Police are investigating an accident that occurred just before 8.30 p.m. Wednesday on I-91 northbound near the Waitley and Hatfield town line. Multiple area emergency responders were requested to the scene, and South Deerfield's fire department's hydraulic extraction tools were used to free an injured party from the vehicle. Dry and cooler today with a mixture of sun and clouds. Look out for the wind. You'll be noticing it with gusts up to 30 miles per hour, a high of 52 to 56. Scattered clouds tonight, overnight low of 22 to 28. Mostly sunny tomorrow, much less wind, a high of 48 to 52. Sunny on Sunday with a high in the mid to upper 50s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. La ciudad de Holyoke celebró el jueves la dedicación del edificio del Ayuntamiento de la Ciudad como parte de la celebración del sesquicentenario de la incorporación de Holyoke como ciudad en 1873. Un hecho particular es que el edificio del Ayuntamiento de Holyoke nunca se dedicó hasta su finalización en 1876. La comunidad de Holyoke celebró la fecha de incorporación del 7 de abril de 1873 con una ceremonia de dedicación en el gran salón de eventos en el segundo nivel del edificio de gobierno. La ceremonia inició con música de la banda de gaitas Caledonian e incluyó la participación del coro madrigal de Holyoke High School y el cierre a cargo de la Western Massachusetts Senior Band. También se destacó un reconocimiento de tierras compartido por Rhonda Anderson, comisionada de Asuntos Indígenas del Oeste de Massachusetts, junto con Larry Spotted Crow Man, quien hizo un canto sagrado. La historiadora de Holyoke, Penny Martorell, describió los detalles históricos del edificio de gobierno de Holyoke e invitó a la audiencia a aprender más en la exposición temporal de Wisteria Hearst sobre el edificio de la alcaldía. La ceremonia de dedicación contó con la presencia del alcalde de Holyoke, Joshua García, oficiales electos tanto del Consejo Municipal y el Comité Escolar, y jefes y personal de las diferentes oficinas de la ciudad, así como a la representante Pat Duffy y la vicegobernadora de Massachusetts, Kim Driscoll. El evento concluyó con la develación de una muestra de la placa conmemorativa que se instalará en el exterior del edificio de la alcaldía, la cual señala la fecha de construcción del edificio y su dedicación 150 años después en 2023. Este es uno de los eventos más destacados que forman parte de las celebraciones de los 150 años de Holyoke que se estarán llevando a cabo durante 2023. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Hampshire College professor and astronomer Salman Hamid. This our segment, Salman Hamid's Universe. We were talking during the break, and I would like to bring our listeners in on that, this conversation, Salman, about the competitive nature of the race, and I think it is a race to the moon, and the potential for conflict regarding the exploitation of minerals uh, that countries and companies want to mine on the moon. And you had brought up the question of and the issue of Chinese space exploration, and I wish you would share that with our listeners, please. 
Yeah, just briefly, I mean, I think the context, uh, apart from the other things that we were talking about before the break in terms of the international aspects and NASA explicitly saying that we are going for humanity, all humans and things like that. Well, yes, uh, but not all humans. I think billion and a half are missing in there because NASA is explicitly prohibited from having any kind of corporation uh, co cooperation with China. And so, and, and this is something that so Chinese have been building their own separate uh, space pro program, including their efforts to go back to the moon. They already have had rovers landed uh, on, on the far side of the moon, which actually nobody had done. And also they have brought samples back from the moon, uh, the first time that any samples have been back since the Apollo mission. So I think that is in the background. Is it, I mean, I think it's a matter of semantics, whether this is Cold War or not, but certainly there is deep competition uh, around that and China, uh, along with Russia and other countries and Europeans. So China is saying, hey, we welcome everybody, including the Americans. <laughs> you know, so they are, their rhetoric is different, but uh, they are, uh, planning on sending humans back probably by 2030. It's unclear, uh, like, you know, exact date, but uh, they also want to send by the end of this decade, not because this is easy. But no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, right, you know. right. John Kennedy's quote, we don't, we do this not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And then they will take one small step for, they left out the article, a man, but uh, a large step for mankind yeah. and so on. Well, we'll see because it's going to be really dangerous and really, uh, it could be really, really uh, exciting, but there also could be huge conflict over who's going to claim the minerals and the rights to the minerals. And I don't think international law and space law really has figured this out yet. So we'll come back. And, and I, yes. Yeah. And if I should just mention, it's not about just mineral. I mean, anything that is over there, for example, there is water, which is on the South Pole that we know, and water can be used for oxygen and for rocket fuels and so on and so forth. So just simple things. That's also cool. Yeah. S simple things like having uh, 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 a, 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 an installation for uh, further space exploration from the moon because with its lack of gravity, it is a much better place to take off from than Earth. Let's turn, we, we'll come, we're going to come back to th this topic in future shows, but I would like, while we have some minutes left, Salman to tell us about what we have learned and seen recently from the James Webb uh, Space Telescope. Yeah, so I wanted to highlight two things. One, very quickly, just check out it just came it was released uh, i think yesterday there's a beautiful image of uranus that uh, james webb space telescope uh, a beautiful showed. image of what uranus uh, monty is not here so i can just say it and, you know, there is no... <laughs> i hardly recognized it okay <laughs> without monty so, to give us a poop joke what, what you know what, how could how can we tell <laughs> that's right and, and so it's, it's, it's just a beautiful image where uh where uh, you can see actually um, 11 of its 13 known rings uh and that's james webb space telescope took but what i wanted to highlight was uh there is a solar system, a star system, TRAPPIST-1. Uh, this is uh, known to have at least seven Earth-sized planets, rocky planets. And uh, it's about 40, roughly 40 light years from Earth. And a couple of these planets are also in the habitable zone from, of its star, meaning to say that they are at a distance 
from a, from its star where water can exist potentially if there is water on the surface in liquid form. So there are seven Earth-sized planets and three of them in the habitable zone. And uh, I'm sorry, someone, let me interrupt for a second. Did, did you just say, yeah. and they have water on them? No, they can potentially. They, they are have. at a distance from its star where, in theory, water can exist. Now, we don't know whether it's there or not. And James Webb Space Telescope has the ability to potentially look for atmospheres around these planets. And so this is actually one of the most anticipated, if not the most anticipated observations from James Webb Space Telescope. We know these planets have been observed. And just now, uh, the first results from it, the, one of the planets, uh, the results have come out. This is TRAPPIST-1b. That's the planet that is closest to the star. Now I should mention, the star is not like our sun. It's a much smaller star. They're called red dwarfs. So it's a cooler than our sun. It's a few thousand degrees instead of 6,000 degrees of our sun. So the, and these planets orbit very, very close. So all seven of these planets, their orbits are way closer than Mercury. So for example, the farthest one of these seven planets take 19 days to go around its star, whereas Mercury takes about 88 days. So we are talking about a very compact system. So James Webb Space Telescope looked at the first planet. This is the closest to its star. It takes one and a half day to go around. And unfortunately, it did not see any uh, atmosphere around it. Now, this is not a sad news. Uh, I mean, if you, if you want to call it sad or happy news, but this I'm going to go with uh, sad. I'm going to go with sad. I'm going to go with sad. <laughs> I was rooting for atmosphere and water and, you know, uh, uh, life. So, so uh, this, this particular planet uh, was not expected. It's not in the habitable zone. It's too close to its star. It's tidally locked, meaning to say one side of it always faces its star. But still, it, it actually told us that, first of all, James Webb Space Telescope has the ability to get information from directly from these planets. This is the first time sort of like, you know, a light directly from the planet has been detected and it's incredible. And I should mention other planets have been observed, but we don't have the results yet. So who knows, maybe astronomers are pouring over the data and wanna make sure if something is right. But this is a great demonstration of the power of James Webb Space Telescope and an incredible thing that we can actually see get information about whether there is planet, uh, atmosphere or not around a planet orbiting a star 40 light years away. We just have a minute left, Salman, but I do want to ask you to tell us what you mean by the word see, because we talk about the James West Space Telescope, and of course I have this idea that they're looking through a little eye hole and they're watching this planet. That's probably not what's happening. So tell us what is actually happening. Yeah, I mean, that would have been tough to send a couple of people down, like, you know, uh, way on the far side, way out, out from the moon and like, you know, to look through the uh, like, you know, eyepiece. No, that is not the case. In, uh, James Webb Space Telescope works in the infrared. And what it means is that we can, this is also a little bit tricky on how it did that, but it can detect light from, in the infrared wavelengths from a star or a planet. So here, what we are saying is that it actually detected light from the planet that is there. Otherwise, most detections of planets around other stars, we actually do not see the planet itself. We only see, we infer the presence of the planet 
through the dips in light of the star. So we, did, we infer them indirectly. Whereas in this particular case, James Webb actually detected some fraction of light coming directly from the planet itself. That's what is revolutionary about it. Wow. I even kind of understood that. Uh, and it, it's mind-bending, I think. It is. It is. I, just a really quick question, because we don't have much time. Do any of these seven planets rotate around the star for roughly 365 days? And do we care? No, but but it's uh, we don't we don't know yet. But the farthest one so far is only takes 19 days. Okay. But we care about 365 because we want to know if there is a place where there could be liquid water or not. And those that can be because the star is much cooler. And so there are a couple of planets in this that are like that. Salman Hamid, thank you so very much. I just love talking to you every month. Thank you so very, very much. <laughs> this has been Salman Hamid's Universe. Thank you very much. Did you know that right here in Western Mass, there are communities where most kids don't even own a single book? That's why the Northampton Radio Group stations are teaming up with Reader to Reader in Amherst. On Saturday, April 15th, the Book Bus is pulling up to our studios at 15 Hampton Avenue in downtown Northampton to collect used or new children's books for any age, from toddlers to teenagers. See what's hiding in your closet, or your attic, or your basement, and bring some beloved old books, a bag, a box, to the Book Bus from 10 to noon on Saturday, April 15th. These books are going to kids right down the river in Springfield. So join Reader to Reader and the Northampton Radio Group for the Book Bus, Saturday, April 15th from 10 to noon on Hampton Avenue in Northampton. Made possible with support from UMass 5 College Federal Credit Union, where you can also drop off books at their Northampton and Hadley branches if you can't make it on the 15th, and by USA Waste and Recycling. The Book Bus. This is what a revolution looks like and reads like. Hear Howie at Broadside Books. Maybe you've read Howie's poems and reviews in Great River Review, Nimrod, Cutthroat, Off the Coast, or Nine Mile. Howie gets around. He jokes that he's an adjunct emeritus. He's taught creative writing at so many different colleges, a five-time Pushcart Prize nominee, lives in Florence, and volunteers at the Center for New Americans. At Broadside, Howie will read from his newly published volume of poetry, Stay. So go. Hear Howie Feierstein read from Stay this Wednesday at 7 at Broadside Books. I'm going down to the corner store. It sounds like the beginning of an old chestnut from a mainly bygone era. Unless you're at the corner of Maine and Chestnut in Florence. Then when you say you're going down to the corner store, you mean Cooper's Corner. And when you walk in, you might feel like you've stepped into a bygone era. It's not too big, not too fancy. Your neighbor is the person behind the counter. And Cooper's is the kind of corner market that's cornered the market on everything on your shopping list. Well, almost everything. Trash bags, cilantro, dish soap, pork chops, tempeh, paper towels, Riesling. And like the corner stores of old, but with a very Florence flourish, Cooper's Corner is still a mom and pop shop, supporting the other mom and pops in the valley. Salad greens from Hadley, coffee roasted in Northampton, honey from Deerfield, kombucha from Greenfield, and they've got all the stuff you need from farther afield too. Greek olive oil, Italian pasta, German Riesling, Cooper's Corner, an old chestnut of a corner store on the corner of Maine and Chestnut in Florence. Open at 6 a.m. every day of the year. 
When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Some of the lowest income districts will actually be able to spend per student close to some of the highest districts, as it should be. You should not be underfunded because you happen to have been born in Holyoke or New, New Bedford or Fall River. 1015-1400-1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. The beat goes on. The beat goes on. Welcome to our regular Friday segment, Artbeat with Donabel Cassis, who has with her and us today a very special guest. Donabel, the microphone is yours. Hi, good morning, Bill and Buzz. Today we have a special guest from East Hampton, uh, is Jason Montgomery, who is an artist, poet, and founder of, or co-founder of Attack Bear Press, but also founder of 50 Arrow Gallery, which will be having two shows, one of which you can catch today, and one that will be opening soon. He joins us today. Welcome. Good, good morning, Donabella. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's kind of weird to be on yes. the Bill Newman show without Monty. So today's nice exciting to... because um, it's the last day to see this incredible show that you have up. It's called Who Are You? which yes. is an exhibit by an emerging indigenous artist and social justice advocate, Anthony Melting Tallow. Can you tell us what we can see in this show today? Uh, so Anthony's uh, show, it's really interesting. Uh, uh, back in November, Anthony had a show at the Wisteria Hearse. And what I was really expecting um, was Anthony to come in essentially with the exact same show. And I would have been fine with that. I think every artist and gallery owner realizes sometimes Sometimes you're going to get stuff that's been somewhere else. But really what he came with was this brand new um, collection of work that really focused on, on both looking forward and looking backwards into his own personal hi uh, history as a um, member of the Blackfoot Nation. Um, it touches on the, um, you know, a very personal story around his family's um, you know, uh, time in the native residential schools. It focuses on the history of, you know, the Canadian government's connection and um, colonization of the Blackfoot Nation. But then it also has a strange forward looking. Um, one of my, my, my favorite parts of Anthony's show is he used um, a AI um, and uh, some digital tools to um, de-age some of these very classic and iconic images of, of Native people. And what you mm -hmm. get is this, this kind of re-kind re of birth of, of these people into the, the contemporary while also kind of honoring who they are. And it also disrupts in a really interesting way the, the idea that like a photo can become larger than the person that that is its subject, and and it's just it's a great show, and it's it's funny. Um, one of my mm -hmm. my favorite moments is uh, the memes, so you got to come see it. Well, you know, uh, I I am fascinated about this whole idea of bridging the contemporary with the historical and the the traditional techniques that were used back then. My piece if i can say that is the piece that is made out of light bright uh, material <laughs> yeah. um tell us about that because he's a multimedia artist so he uses all types of media but tell us about that particular piece 
Yeah, that one is that one is great. Um, and it's funny because it, he brought it in. At, we had had the whole show up and I wasn't expecting it. I was like, oh, this is wonderful. And he brings in this light bright and and puts it up on the wall and turns it on. And I, I mean, I, I know that that image that he he's generated there is another one of these iconic images. And for the life of me, it's escaping me. But um yeah, but it's, you know, it's, that, is it a fallen is it a fallen individual on a horse is it, it is a fallen individual on a horse um yes, but it's yes. the playful nature of it and the the way to engage this very sorrowful like text and history but also in, a, in this kind of fun and uh, way that's like about healing and both anthony mm -hmm. and i have spent time together in the gallery kind of talking as indigenous artists about how this feels like a healing moment um, for him personally, um, and and this kind of emergence of of who he is as an artist, which I think relates back to the who are you. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah. well, well, first let be, if it just to go back a little bit. If anyone can remember what a light bright is, I know we're dating ourselves. <laughs> it is this toy that has sort of a black panel where you insert these little plastic pieces which if you poke the surface of the black paper shows light through there and it illuminates that little peg that you put in and so you know anthony had created this um image of this fallen uh native american on a horse in silhouette but around him is this colorful sort of um light emanating from these light bright pegs uh kind of uniting both you know you were saying this healing process of bringing the light forward and you know the the actual silhouette is kind of receding back as sort of a flat plane on the surface very powerful piece a very um emotional piece and so i i really appreciate that but he also has a couple other pieces before we talk about your next show um that you wanted to mention oh yeah uh particularly the the memes that he's generated, um, which to me, that, that's native humor in a nutshell. Um, my favorite one is the how to talk to your dog about um, stolen land. And it's it, it's this cute little meme book thing. And it, it just, it it's, it's laughing through kind of the hard times that like, mm -hmm. uh, it, for me, it's such a, if you really want to talk about indigenous culture, it's it's not just all the sad things that have happened. Mm -hmm. It's also mm -hmm. the resilience and the strength around being able to smile and still welcome people with open arms. And I think Anthony's show really does that. It's up until the end of today. End of today, so definitely check it out. But opening soon, April 13th, as part of a celebration of National Poetry Month, um, what do you have opening? Because it oh. looks so exciting. Oh, it is. It's going to be a, it's going to be a fun one. It's the Speaking Colors show. This is an exhibition of arts and expressive poetry. Expressive poetry is poetry that utilizes a piece of art or another image to as its prompt, as its generation. So we brought together some incredible heavy hitters from kind of the 50 Arrow Gallery collection um, uh, of folks. We've asked all of our artists since we opened if they wanted to take part, 10 of them stepped up. Um, this includes artists like Justin Beattie, um, Nate Begay from the Navajo Nation, um, local artists like Mike Medeiros and Jen Turner. Uh, and then we went out and found some great poets. Um, I think we have four poet laureates that are taking part. Uh, 
Yeah. Um, so Maya Williams, the Poet Laureate of Portland, Maine. Uh, Maria Cruzado, the first Poet Laureate of Springfield. Uh, we have art uh, poets like uh, Julio Diaz, who is uh, a, a Northampton-based poet. Um, Miguel Bacho, who is a, a Chilean poet. Um, a poet by the name of Jason Montgomery, who is outgoing poet laureate of East Hampton. <laughs> is that you? Um, <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that happens to that's be me. Um, yeah, it, so I mean, it, I'm looking at the lineup, and it just, just yeah. incredible. And um, when can people see it? What are the hours quickly? Um, uh, the hours quickly, uh, Tuesdays and uh, Tuesdays through Thursdays, 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. Fridays from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. Where? Jason Montgomery. 50 Arrow Gallery. Thank you so much. It's in East Hampton in the Eastworks building. You've got to check it out. Thank you very much, Jason Montgomery and Donabel Cassis. This has been Artbeat on Talk the Talk. The beat goes on. The beat goes on. Drums keep pounding a rhythm. Environmental nonprofit, Ocean River Institute is working with communities to tackle climate change with nature-based solutions that feature slowing water down and building more soil with grasses and plants. Research indicates that people acting in their own neighborhoods can build an inch of soil in a year and slow sea level rise down by as much as 25%. Please visit OceanRiver.org for more information on opportunities to make a difference and go the distance for savvy stewardship of a greener and bluer planet Earth. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult looking to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam and preparing for college. To find out about our free classes in Franklin and Hampshire counties, check us out online at literacyproject.org, or call us in Northampton at 413-584-6755. <laughs> WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, WHMP.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 10 o'clock. This is CBS News on the Hour, presented by Indeed.com. I'm Vicki Barker in London. New government figures show another 236,000 jobs were added to U.S. payrolls last month. Leisure and hospitality continues to lead the hiring parade with 72,000 jobs added there. Even so, this category, which includes bars and restaurants, remains 368,000 jobs shy of its pre-pandemic level. Bankrate.com's Mark Hamrick. The unemployment rate fell to 3.5%, close to the 53-year low set in January. Tennessee's Republican-run legislature has expelled two black Democratic lawmakers who disrupted proceedings with a noisy protest against last week's Covenant School massacre. A third white Democrat escaped expulsion by one vote. CBS's Jim Crisula has more. The two expelled Democratic state lawmakers may not be gone for long. County commissioners in their districts will pick replacements to serve until special elections can be held, and they could opt to choose Justin Jones and Justin Pearson. They could also run again. After Beijing didn't like Kevin McCarthy's choice of conversation companion. China announced sanctions against two American institutions, the Reagan Library in Los Angeles and the Hudson Institute, a conservative think tank in New York. The sanctions are retaliation for the meeting on Wednesday between Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen and U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. The Reagan Library had hosted the meeting and the Hudson Institute had invited President Tsai to speak. CBS's Elizabeth Palmer in Taipei. China continues to 
claim the island nation of Taiwan as its own. Tensions running high in the Middle East, rockets too. CBS's Ian Lee reports from the Foreign Desk. Overnight, Israeli warplanes hit Gaza and Lebanon. Israel says the strikes were in retaliation for dozens of rockets fired by Hamas. This marks the biggest barrage by militants from Israel's northern neighbor in 17 years. Fresh from a water crisis, Mississippi's capital city Jackson is back in the media spotlight. It now has garbage piling up, even though local trash collection taxes have gone up too, as Councilman Vernon Hartley pointed out. During the past year or so, we have almost doubled your solid waste rates. You would think that we could afford to have an equivalent professional service within the city of Jackson. A power struggle between the council and the mayor means the city failed to ratify the latest trash collection contract. And fed up with litter in his city, the Boston City Councilors proposed barring liquor stores from selling single-serve bottles of booze. It's a way to address alcohol abuse, too. He says this is CBS News. Streamline how you hire with Indeed. Their powerful hiring platform makes it easy to attract, interview, and hire candidates all in the same place. Visit Indeed.com slash credit. Have you Googled yourself lately? Are there negative posts from an ex-employee or a former client? Maybe an outdated news article or sensitive personal information about your family? Search engines don't always get it right. But right or wrong, it's your reputation on the line. That's where Reputation Defender by Norton comes in. One of the most trusted names in online reputation repair, Reputation Defender has been fixing people's search results for over 15 years. Their cutting-edge approaches help you to wipe away unwanted information in your search results. They also promote the good stuff so that it rises to the top, helping you put your best foot forward. Your good name is too valuable to leave to the whims of a Google algorithm. Take control with Reputation Defender. You can start by getting your free reputation report card at reputationdefender.com or call 800-401-6681 to speak to an expert. That's 800-401. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. More information is coming to light about the East Hampton superintendent candidate whose job offer was rescinded after he referred to two female school committee members in an email as ladies. School committee chair Cynthia Kwasinski said the committee already had concerns about offering Vito Perone the job, and the email sent by Perone during the negotiation process changed their decision. Perone had requested a cost-of-living increase, 30 vacation days, and 40 sick days every year, and in that message addressed Kwasinski and her assistant as ladies. The school committee chair told the Gazette she was insulted by the familiarity with which the candidate addressed her and the committee's executive assistant, and that his request for nearly 14 weeks of paid time off was unreasonable. Perone has said he never fully got the chance to negotiate the terms of his employment. A South Hadley man accused of killing his father and then trying to light his house on fire was arraigned in Hampshire Superior Court on Thursday. 35-year-old Craig Weiss pleaded not guilty to charges of murder and attempted arson. Weiss had already been arraigned on murder charges in December in Eastern Hampshire District Court. A pretrial hearing for the Hampshire Superior Court case is scheduled for July 18th. Police are investigating an accident that occurred just before 8.30 p.m. Wednesday on I-91 northbound near the Waitley and Hatfield town line. Multiple area emergency responders were requested to the scene, and South Deerfield's fire department's hydraulic extraction tools were used to free an injured party from the vehicle. 
Dry and cooler today with a mixture of sun and clouds. Look out for the wind. You'll be noticing it with gusts up to 30 miles per hour, a high of 52 to 56. Scattered clouds tonight, overnight low of 22 to 28. Mostly sunny tomorrow, much less wind, a high of 48 to 52. Sunny on Sunday with a high in the mid to upper 50s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to the show. I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. And Bill Newman, we have a dynasty of brewing in East Hampton at East Hampton High School. And it is something that runs dear to both of our hearts. It is a We the People class at East Hampton High School that is always talking about the national framework and constraints of government and the U.S. Constitution and the legal principles, and they compete with other schools. And to tell us about it is the sort of the conductor of this orchestra that plays so beautifully at East Hampton High School, and that is Kelly Brown. Hello, Kelly Brown. Good morning. How are you? I am thrilled to be in the studio with you and with these three bright light students of yours. So I guess we have to start with, um, you are a civics and history teacher. What is the We the People competition? Sure, I would love to explain that. So the We the People competition is actually part of a We the People course that we teach at East Hampton High School. And the course, it starts with a semester-long introduction into the Constitution, where we begin with the philosophical origins of the Constitution, and we pull that all the way through to modern application. And so students have the opportunity to really learn about the Constitution and how it's applied in our society. But additionally, I think the unique part about this program is we use an authentic assessment program. So as students are taking the course, they have a chance to engage. Instead of taking a test or writing an essay, they engage in a hearing process. It's a, it's a mock constitutional hearing process where they answer some questions and develop some writing in small teams around a set of questions. And they have the opportunity to present those questions to uh, and their answers to those questions to community members. So after each unit, I bring in guests from the community, and the students uh, in small teams will present a short piece about what they've been studying, and then they open themselves up to questions from the guests about their topic, and they have to really put away their notes and answer off the top of the dome, and uh, it really show what they know with people that they don't really know. And so the authentic nature of the assessment, I think, really raises the stakes for what students want to do and how they want to prepare. And because they're topics that affect students' lives, I think it is a really much more engaging way to, to learn about things. And so the competition part, the part that we've become most well-known for, at the end of the semester, students present uh, in a state competition. It happens usually at the Edward M. Kennedy Center uh, for the Senate in Boston. By the way, if you haven't been there, you really should go to the Edward M. Kennedy Institute for the U.S. Senate. It is an extraordinary place for students to get a sense. It's a real replica of the Senate chambers, and you get to debate exactly in this replica of how it really happens in D.C. And it's stunning. It's absolutely beautiful there. And it's what a wonderful uh, place to sort of honor the work of students. And by the way, the new executive director is our own Adam Hines. Yes. 
Senator Adam Hines is the new executive director. Yes, and he was so excited to host us this year. And so students have the opportunity to then do that same authentic process, except they compete against other students from other schools across the state of Massachusetts. And so uh, in the end of January, my students participated and they won the Massachusetts state competition for the sixth year in a row, which is sixth very year exciting. year in a row, East Hampton High School. Yes, so we work, and student we can only compete once. The students can only compete once, and so every year we have a new group of students, and now we're preparing to head to nationals to do the same thing, except to compete against the states instead of uh, other schools from Massachusetts. And how has East Hampton uh, and Massachusetts done in nationals recently? We've done pretty well. In the last six years, we've taken home some type of national award every year. Uh, there's different types of awards. You can win a unit award. You can win a regional award. A and unit then, meaning one portion of the things that are being examined that year. Exactly. And certain students have focused on that unit. Yes. And, okay, and what other kind of and awards? And then there's a regional award. So that's an award for the states doing the best in your geographic region of the country. And then uh, you can make the top 12 or top 10, depending on the year. They seem to switch that up. And that's sort of the, the next highest award. And then, of course, in 2020, we actually won the entire competition and we were national champions. You were national champions. It's unbelievable. It really is unbelievable. We, we certainly uh, compete against private and public schools from all over the country. So it's, it's a huge deal. It's a very difficult competition. And it's incredible what these students can do. How many schools from across the country are involved? And, and if you take... I guess I want to follow Buzz's question about where the competition occurs in Boston. Where does the national competition occur? In the actual Senate? So the actual competition takes place at the National Convention Center, which is in Leesburg, Virginia. And so it's a it's a very large convention venue that students, we, you know, we can um, accommodate. I believe there are 48 teams that are competing this year. It really depends on the year if every single state is represented. Sometimes certain states don't come or they don't bring a team or they can't afford to. It, it takes a whole lot of fundraising, which we have an amazing community. And are these the winning teams from the individual yes. states in the same way that the East Hampton High School is the winner of the competition for all of Massachusetts? Yes. Wow. Okay, thank you. Right. And we compete against, you know, California has a school with 3,000 students. And uh, East Hampton with our 350 and uh, the 20 students that walk through my door, we go and we put in a, a, a pretty good showing. So it's against it's state champions. Yes, it's truly incredible. Well, let's meet some of these amazing young people. Let's start with Maura. Maura, you've been focusing on the creation of the Constitution, right? Yes. And so talk to us. Tell us about what you are learning, and what you intend to talk about when you are actually competing. Yeah, so um, we focus on my unit, Unit 2. We focus a lot on the creation of the Constitution and many of the debates that took place at the Philadelphia Convention where the Constitution was created. And currently we are looking at debates such as the fear of aristocratic tyranny as well as the division of the states into separate republics. And then what we've been focusing on a lot recently is bicameralism and the nature of bicameralism in our society and whether or not that's really functioning the way the framers intended. And what do you think? Is bicameralism focusing on the way the framers intended? I do not actually think it is focus 
functioning the way the framers intended. Framers such as Madison, as he discussed in Federalist 48, as well as Jefferson in his notes on the state of Virginia, they really believed that the legislature would suck up all the power in what they called a legislative vortex. However, in reality, such polarization has taken place in Congress, and there's been such a lack of civil discourse, which I believe is um, something that's very important to any functioning government. And I feel like this has caused there to be a new vortex, a presidential vortex, which the lawmaking power of Congress is often being delegated off to the president or to the executive. Recently, in a case of um, U.S. v. Texas, I there has um, the Biden administration has been accused of using lawmaking power to determine whether or not um, immigrants should be deported or not. And this is just one example of how the lawmaking power of Congress has really been shifted and there's been more, more of it has been given to the executive. Uh, am I in law school, Bill? <laughs> I, I would be interested to know what you think about whether or not the framers actually had a democracy in mind uh, when you're talking about bicameralism, that is two houses in the legislative branch. Uh, because, well, I'd appreciate your view. I mean, were they actually trying to put into effect a democracy? What do you say, Maura? I feel like in a way, yes, but m for the most part, not necessarily a true direct democracy. Many of the state constitutions, such as Pennsylvania, um, they were unicam or un Pennsylvania specifically had a unicameral legislature with the government that was so directly tied to the people with annual elections. And this resulted in kind of excessive democracy and chaos. And I feel like that kind of caused many framers, such as Madison and Hamilton and Washington, to really steer away from that um, idea. And they ended up taking on more of the ideas of John Adams in his thoughts on government, which he argued for more of a mixed government with more structure. Um, even Madison then in Federalist 62 and 63 describes the Senate as more of an elite, aristocratic body, um, so that they could really have more of a check on each other. And really, the two houses of Congress were made more to have that refined and enlarged view. An elite body because, in fact, the Senate wasn't elected by the people was at all. It was elected by state legislators, mm -hmm. right? Legislatures. Yes, it was elected by state legislatures up until the 17th Amendment. Well, Kelly Brown, I'm just a little impressed <laughs> We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to hear from Anna and from Dia, and we're going to talk about the Bill of Rights. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Lisa Riley. Join me every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP as we share stories that shine a light on justice-involved individuals or just underdogs in the game of life, their struggles, their successes, and the many resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a new path and prove that failure isn't final. So unlock your future, rewrite your story. This is The Hustler Files. Come on over to the co-op, the Greenville Co-operative Bank. 
At Greenfield Cooperative Bank, it pays to get pre-approved. If you're looking to buy a home, right now is the perfect time to save up to $1,250 on your mortgage closing costs. We make it easy to apply online at bestlocalbank.com or at any of our branch locations. Our local, experienced mortgage team is happy to walk you through the process so you can get in your new home as quickly and as easily as possible. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. Close by September 30th. Be a new first-time mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan, subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the At Mountain View Farm in East Hampton, we have been growing beautiful, certified organic produce exclusively for our farm share members since we started. And we have been voted best local CSA in the Valley for the last 15 years running. Included in your weekly pickup, you can also enjoy our field of Yupik flowers and herbs all season long. And you can shop in our farm store, which features many wonderful local products. We offer shares for all size households. Sign up at mountainviewfarmcsa.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with Kelly Brown, the teacher of civics and history at East Hampton High School and the person who teaches the We the People course and guides the competition, uh, of the successful competition of the East Hampton High School dynasty. I don't know how else to put it. Just when there's six straight state championship. They were national championships and walk away with an award every year from the national competition that we've been hearing about. I want to turn to Anna first and then Dia. Anna, you are focused on the Bill of Rights. So what is your focus? And it, well, maybe I should say my understanding is the question that you've been entertaining is whether people should be concerned if the government is reading our emails and listening to our phone calls, if we aren't doing anything wrong. So could you talk to us about that? Yeah, so we really focus on the Bill of Rights, specifically the First and Fourth Amendment is what mainly our questions have been on. So the First Amendment, the questions that we focus on is speech and religion, but the Fourth Amendment is where the privacy comes in. And many people can argue that if the government the government should be able to look at information, especially if you're not doing anything wrong. But we really disagree with this, especially being teenagers. We believe that in order to properly find who we are, we should be able to send emails or text messages to our friends and be able to talk about political issues that are going on. But it can scare us because the government can look at any of our emails or phone calls. And with the mosaic theory, it can be seen that with the government collecting all of this information about Americans, maybe specifically if you zone in on one American, it may not be dangerous. But this creates a clear picture. And this clear picture can group certain Americans into certain political political groups or opinions, which when foreign countries look at this, they can use these opinions to turn Americans against each other. And this can really become dangerous when foreign enemies come into play because it can be seen that Russia in the 2016 election, through the Mueller report, it can be seen that they use the information of the two sides of this election to polarize the Americans against each other. Dia, you're working with Anna on on this project? Yeah, we are in the same unit. And uh, so uh, I just heard Anna talk about the mosaic theory. What is mosaic theory? So the mosaic theory is really when you take tiny pieces. Well, it's when you take 
pieces of information and they're small and a mosaic is when there's like tiny bits of, you could call it like squares, that when you look at it in a rather a refined enlarged view, you can see a clear picture. So when there's information taken from different Americans, like what, where you're going for dinner or like any emails that you send to anyone overseas, these may not seem dangerous, but when there's a clear picture, this is when it really can become dangerous. And we believe that, as Justice Brandeis said, the right to be let alone is one of the most comprehensive rights of all men. And we believe that you really need the right to privacy in order to truly be happy and find yourself. That was a great experience, explanation, excuse me, of the uh, theory of mosaic theory of intelligence gathering. So what is your takeaway, Dia? What What are you learning and what do you want to share with us? Well, privacy is more um, is very important to me, especially being a first generation Indian American. I have a lot of family abroad who lives in India who I talk to on a day to day basis under Section 702 of the FISA amendments, which is the Federal Intelligence Agency Surveillance, Surveillance Act. Yes. Act. Um, the, the FISA courts can actually monitor what is being talked to abroad for people abroad. So. If I'm talking to my family abroad about random things like, you know, how your day went or maybe like something that happened in school, it makes me uncomfortable to know that just because I have family abroad, the government can be listening to me. But it's so easy to get a warrant from a FISA court to listen exactly. to. Exactly. They mask the identities of people, but it can be seen that it's very hard or it's very easy to get these identities unmasked because what, no what, probable cause is needed. What part of the Constitution do you rely on to say that's wrong? Well, Does, the Fourth Amendment, we don't have an explicit right to pri privacy stated, but um, through the case Griswold v. Connecticut, we have gathered certain uh, amendments that give us an implied right to privacy. This would be the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and ninth amendments, which create a penumbra of rights to give us. A penumbra of rights. It's that sort of aura that we see if we look up at a star and somewhere exactly. around all these rights is the right to privacy is what you're saying. Yes. Pretty incredible. I, I want to come back to you, Kelly Brown. This is pretty sophisticated stuff for kids that age to be dealing with. How? And, and can we find out what, what, what grades you guys are in and uh, how old you are? We are all juniors in high school and I am 17. Okay. That's Anna. How old are you, Maura? I am also 17, and as Anna said, a junior in high school. And Same for me, I'm 17. A bunch of 17-year-olds in here. How, how do you get them so focused on such important matters and, and to understand things which are pretty, pretty complex? So I think there's a few pieces to it. I think uh, because we have such a, uh, an amazing program at East Hampton High School, I do think there's some draw to students to be a part of it because clearly it's such a wonderful experience and students talk to each other. And that's one of the big draws, I think, is that previous students suggest that other students take this course. I also get a lot of support from my previous students. So we have mentor students who come back and they help to coach the students in, on this year's team. And they really can, can sometimes connect to the students and explain the ideas a little bit better. But I also create sort of a, a, sort of a small army of knowledge uh, so that, that really the, the touch goes a lot farther. And so for me, I can't be with every student 
student at every moment telling them every complex theory about, you know, the 14th Amendment or the state secrets doctrine. So I have to rely on other students and volunteers and, and really this We the People family that we've created. And so I, that's huge. And my theory is that I, I have students who come back, they're in college, they come back on Thanksgiving break, they come back over winter break. And I really think it's because they develop this intense understanding and then they get out in the world and nobody else wants to talk to them about it. And so there's this pull to come back and say, you know, I want to talk about the non-delegation doctrine or, you know, the state secrets doctrine or something else, a non-commandeering doctrine. And nobody else wants to talk to me. <laughs> and you, Kelly Brown, the last time we spoke, uh, you were on the program shortly talking about uh, it's important for the community to help fund this incredible amount of travel that's involved and the resources that are necessary. And you held a spaghetti dinner fundraiser. How'd that go? We had an amazing auction and spaghetti supper, and we raised over $16,000 in one night, which pushed us over our fundraising. And uh, as I have said so many times and will continue to say, the East Hampton community is unbelievable. And our extended family, we have all sorts of people from Northampton and Florence and Amherst and uh, my town of Montgomery that donate and support us. And it was a fantastic evening from businesses that donated auction items to uh, the food. It was just unbelievable. And I am so grateful for all of the support every single year because we come back asking every year. And it, it really is just humbling. Dio, when you go to this competition, are you going to feel pressure because so many people in the community are hoping that you do well? Definitely. I think even just being there and kind of seeing the other schools around, it's going to make us nervous. But one thing we realized yesterday being at the State House doing hearings was that when the judges are sitting in front of you and you need to just be serious and tell yourself that you know what you know, it really helps in making sure that we have a good hearing, despite all the nervousness that might be around it. Obviously, a person like Bill Newman, who's sitting in the studio watching you, who has dedicated his life to vindicating constitutional principles, he's pretty warmed by this. But I, I want to ask you, Anna, are these transferable skills that is a discipline and uh, looking for um, the, a way to approach a difficult question like this, does that help you in any other arenas of your life and other studies in your curriculum in East Hampton High School? I believe that it really does. I don't think I would argue that it really helps with the other classes at East Hampton High School. But I personally, I want to go on because of this class and because of the class I took with Miss Brown in the previous year. I actually used to not like history very much. But after having Miss Brown as a teacher, it really made me love history. And that makes me really want to become a lawyer when I get older. So I'm really looking to be to further my interest in this. Uh, Maura, how does Miss Brown do this in your mind? What does she do that inspires you so? I feel like Miss Brown just inspires all of us so, so, so much with her worth ethic and just how much she does for each and every one of us and how much she shows that she cares for each and every one of us. And she, we were, um, as you were saying before in the break, we were talking about how she says that a moment wasted is a moment wasted. And she, we know that she puts her heart and soul into this program and even in every like second that she's not doing something else, she's doing We the People. And so that kind of motivates us to want to work hard and want to um, really be there alongside with her on this journey. I was particularly interested in the rule from We the People that you can only compete once. So uh, Adia and, and uh, uh, Maura and 
uh, and Donna, uh, they can't compete next year, but they can help your students next year who are competing. And I'm wondering whether or not this has evolved into or created a real community of scholars and a community of learners at the high school and whether or not that was something you anticipated or whether this was an unexpected and quite remarkable development. So I would 100% agree. We call it the We the People family. We say it's a little like the Hotel California. You can check out anytime <laughs> you like, but you can never leave, and they all come back. Um, but I, you know, I've been an athlete my whole life, and I, I grew up in Hatfield, and I played on some pretty amazing programs, and I, I understand the importance of creating a culture of learning and a culture of excellence and how that family and that that group can really help to carry forward and, and create something much bigger than a class or a one-time competition, that there is sort of an expectation of excellence. And, and really every year, students do better. And that's amazing. And the mentors come back and they say, you're better than us. And we want you to be even better. And, and that's exciting to me because it shows that they really see themselves, mentors, students, all as part of, of a, a family and a, and a mission to continue to move forward and get better at what we're doing. And it's inspiring. I'm inspired by these young people. Um, I couldn't have done anything like this, or I certainly didn't do anything like this when I was in high school. And uh, it just makes me smile. Like I, when I, I have so much pride and, and I push them very hard and they know that. But when I get the opportunity to see them here, or I get to see them at the State House yesterday, I, it just fills my heart because they're doing wonderful things and they're going to continue to do wonderful things, even if they, you know, become a dentist. Well, the way they answer the questions, all three of you, really remarkable. I, I would like to know whether or not you have your students working with original source material. Whether what are what are they using to learn? Yes, 100% we're using original source material. Obviously, we also work from scholars because scholars often have a much stronger trained eye than, than we do. But when Maura's talking about the Federalist Papers, she's reading the Federalist Papers. And just this morning, um, you know, Anna was talking about uh, Brandeis's dissent in Olmsted. We were just looking at the text and the whole concept, the originalist theory of, you know, he says the framers really set forth to create the conditions that were ideal for the pursuit of happiness. And, and we talk about, we read Aristotle, we read Cicero, you know, we're reading Plato to understand Socrates. So we're reading those sources, but we're also reading what scholars have to say because there's that, right? It's, you know, we don't expect to be, uh, have an expertise in those sources, but we like to look at all of those pieces and, and they're digging into it and it's tough language. So we work through it together. And for those of our listeners who didn't take uh, this class, we should note that the dissent by Brandeis and Olmsted was the first time that a Supreme Court justice articulated a right to privacy, a specific right to privacy in the Constitution. We have been meeting. How did I do? How did I do? Is that okay? Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, what, what kind of grade is he going to get? Fantastic. What I want to do is I want to send uh, all three of you down to Tennessee right now, <laughs> and to D.C. for that matter, but it is an extraordinary thing. The, uh, the program, We the People, the course becomes part of a statewide competition. East Hampton High School has won six years in a row. It goes to national competition. It has won the national competition and numerous awards that are offered there. It is We the People with Kelly Brown. We've been talking to Maura and Anna and Dia, excuse me, and I can't be more happy than to be in a room with 
all of you. Thank you so much for everything you do. Kelly Brown, you're a rock star. Hey, thanks. I really appreciate y'all having us today. So thank you. And these three students, they're total rock stars. <laughs> Indeed. We will be right back. I dreamed the perfect union and a perfect law undenied. Most of all, I dreamed I forgot the day John Kennedy died. I dreamed that I could. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. More information is coming to light about the East Hampton superintendent candidate whose job offer was rescinded after he referred to two female school committee members in an email as ladies. School committee chair Cynthia Kwasinski said the committee already had concerns about offering Vito Peron the job, and the email sent by Peron during the negotiation process changed their decision. Perone had requested a cost of living increase, 30 vacation days, and 46 days every year, and in that message addressed Kwasinski and her assistant as ladies. The school committee chair told the Gazette she was insulted by the familiarity with which the candidate addressed her and the committee's executive assistant, and that his request for nearly 14 weeks of paid time off was unreasonable. Perone has said he never fully got the chance to negotiate the terms of his employment. A South Hadley man accused of killing his father and then trying to light his house on fire was arraigned in Hampshire Superior Court on Thursday. 35-year-old Craig Weiss pleaded not guilty to charges of murder and attempted arson. Weiss had already been arraigned on murder charges in December in Eastern Hampshire District Court. A pretrial hearing for the Hampshire Superior Court case is scheduled for July 18th. Police are investigating an accident that occurred just before 8.30 p.m. Wednesday on I-91 northbound near the Waitley and Hatfield town line. Multiple area emergency responders were requested to the scene, and South Deerfield's fire department's hydraulic extraction tools were used to free an injured party from the vehicle. Dry and cooler today with a mixture of sun and clouds. Look out for the wind. You'll be noticing it with gusts up to 30 miles per hour, a high of 52 to 56. Scattered clouds tonight, overnight low of 22 to 28. Mostly sunny tomorrow, much less wind, a high of 48 to 52. Sunny on Sunday with a high in the mid to upper 50s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m., Mexcalito releases certificates for their taco bar in downtown Amherst. Mexcalito has tacos for every pellet, carne asada, portobello, chorizo, and Baja shrimp or fish taco in downtown Amherst. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Mexcalito in Amherst, available this Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. At PV Squared Solar, we live by our mission, energizing a brighter future for people and planet. This year, we are celebrating our 20th anniversary. 20 years of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar. 20 years of relationships founded on trust and clean energy. 20 years of powerful cooperation. Thank you for the partnerships along the way, and we look forward to serving this community for 20 years more. Happy birthday, PV Squared! Learn more at pvsquared.coop. Welcome back, landscape contractors. Winesick Nursery in Hadley is ready to take your orders for trees, shrubs, perennials, mulch, soil, compost, and landscape supplies. 
WineSick Nursery offers the area's largest and healthiest selection of landscape plants. Order now before the spring rush begins and we'll hold your order until pickup. Visit WineSick Nursery on Route 9 in Hadley and at winesicknursery.com. We are the grower. Come to the source. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you get the best local and organic produce, a butcher shop, wine and cheese shop, fresh seafood, and hundreds of bulk herbs, spices, and more. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you create hundreds of union jobs and generate over $7 million in purchases from local farms and businesses. River Valley Co-op is your food hub, bringing you the best from around the valley and world while supporting your neighbors and local farmers. Shop River Valley Co-op in Northampton and East Hampton today. River Valley. Co-op. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to our show. We have a very special guest coming up. But first, we wanted to talk a little bit more about this uh, East Hampton superintendent uh, situation. Um, Bill, you have uh, a newspaper in front of you. Well, I have the newspaper. Today's Daily Hampshire Gazette and the news story by Emily Thurlow that I'd like to share with our listeners who may not have read it yet. I also have read a really interesting uh, opinion piece in the Boston Globe saying, in essence, look, uh, it's not good to have articulated uh, this, uh, this uh, or used this uh, term of, of address, this salutation, ladies, but it's not a reason to destroy somebody's career. Today's headline Top of the fold, Daily Hampshire Gazette, board chair speaks out in super dispute with these, uh, I think, very interesting facts. It says that in the negotiation between uh, the uh, would-be superintendent, uh, Vito Perón, and the school committee, that he had asked for cost of living adjustments of 3% for both years of the contract and that he'd be granted 30 vacation days and 40 sick days each year. And that really is quite an extraordinary demand, in my opinion. Uh, 70 paid days off per year. I've never heard of anything like that. It seemed to me completely, it seems to me it's completely unrealistic. When you talk about sick days and uh, uh, leave days, you know, you're talking about 12 sick days, more or less, and probably three weeks, four weeks vacation. So, you know, we're talking about in the 35 days, maybe seven weeks total. That's, that's a lot. Um, to, to come in with a demand for uh, 46 days and 30 vacation days, it does seem to me quite odd, um, actually, and not realistic. And what, this super, what the superintendent search committee, or at least the school committee uh, uh, chair has said is, look, there were bells and warning signs going off before this, and you add all this together and the ladies' salutation, and it just made us nervous, and so we rescinded the offer. Uh, we never made an offer. Be and what the uh, superintendent candidate, Vito Perón, says is, wait a second, we were supposed to have a negotiation. There was no negotiation. I sent this email. I was told I defended people. I understand what had been said. I had no ability to negotiate anything. They just said, you're over, you're done, we're finished. So there was no negotiation. Right, and I just want to point out, when you said that was his demand, I think that was his ask as part of the negotiation. It is a lot. I'm in total agreement. It, 70 days is, uh, that's the equivalent of, uh, 
what that's uh, ten weeks. That's a that's a fifth of the the year to either have the capacity of taking sick days or vacation days. That would be a lot, but it was part of a negotiation. The real question that would explain why three of the seven voted against offering the contract. Four, however, did. Well, it doesn't explain. No, 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 no. Uh, well, I'm sorry. Yes, yes, yes. No, no, no. The yes, yes, yes is that uh, the vote to offer him the job was four to three. Right. That's what I'm saying. The, uh, so three didn't uh, support hiring him in the first place. And the vote to rescind the contract, well, I don't think we officially know what that is yet. But, and the end of my sentence is that, that uh, this apparently what pulled somebody, we think, over the edge such that a rescission happened, we think, is this uh, dear ladies, the use of the term ladies, so that in the face of all that other stuff that had been overlooked by four of the seven when they offered the, the contract, this is what sort of was the... It was the, trigger, it was the triggering event. And, and, and I I'm, I'm really am somewhat disturbed by the, uh, this attempt that is in the newspaper today and congratulations to the reporter for digging out these Emily Thoreau has been following the yeah, story. Yes, the East Hampton reporter for the Gazette. I, I, I am disturbed still by the, the call made. Apparently, uh, Vito Perona said, well, I'm available for 24-7. And they called him at midnight to offer him the job, and they couldn't get through. And that was another reason. He said he'd be available 24-7, and we called him, but um, he didn't answer at midnight. At 12.30. So, so they sent over a police officer to do a wellness check to see if he was okay. What are you well, doing at 12.30 in the morning? Well, I think, you know, I guess if they said he'd be waiting up for their call. Um, the question is whether this is a misunderstanding or if it's just kind of odd behavior by the school committee saying, well, he said he'd be available 24-7, and we want an answer now. And apparently they said they couldn't adjourn the meeting until they had an answer on whether he would uh, accept. But that process is odd, to say the least, and I don't think that's on him. I think that's on the school committee. Say, you have to be available. You have to, if you want someone to be available for you at 1230 night, I think you have to let them know you're going to be calling. So the bottom line is Monday... There is going to be this Zoom on Monday, and there's going to be a capacity for more than 300 people to watch or participate. What what do we know about that? Well, I think it's a regular school committee meeting, and the usual rules will apply, and those who will be allowed to speak in public comment. I don't know the exact rules for the school, the Stanford School Committee's uh, public comment section, but presumably uh, it will be a normal public comment session, session. I don't know how long and whether there is are time limits and what they are. But and then the school committee will, I guess, no, the school committee will take actions with regard to the superintendent's search. Well, it is quite a story. It continues to unfold. It is quite a story. It's received not only statewide, not only national, but even international uh, attention. And a lot of people are fixed on the use of the word uh, ladies and what role it did or did not play uh, in the rescission of the contract offer. Meanwhile, we have a very special guest. Uh, we have Dwayne Bryant. Dwayne Bryant is an author. He's a speaker. And he's described by many people as a master storyteller. And he delivers a message in his book, The Stop, which is subtitled Improving Police and Community Relations. He talks about relations between the police and those people that they stop. And I just want to welcome you. Hello, Dwayne. 
Good morning, good morning. It is a pleasure to be here. How are you? Should I say gentlemen or just how are you? <laughs> I, I will you have be... the right to remain silent. <laughs> I certainly won't be offended if you call us gentlemen, but I would be surprised if you call me a gentleman. No, but seriously, I guess the best place to start here is in your book, The Stop. You talk about uh, seven real-life personal encounters that you have had as an African-American male with police from your childhood through your adulthood. Let's talk about that. Sure. So, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Please describe those and, and why they motivated you to write this book. So, in the book, I talk about seven personal encounters I've had from elementary school, middle school, high school, college, and beyond. Some were very nice uh, engagements. Some were life-threatening. Some I literally thought I may have died. Um, starting in elementary school, my brother and I, my mom always believed in education. She was a single parent mom with six children. And she thought that I'm going to send you to white schools because white kids get better education. So after school, white kids didn't lock up their bikes. And we were too poor to afford bikes. So my brother and I would run outside, run on the bicycle, jump on the bike, just ride around and always bring them back. One particular day, we stayed out a little too long, having fun, and the police officer was behind us. And my brother was like, oh, what should we do? I said, let's just do what we always do. And he said, man, let's just drop these bikes and run. I said, why, why? This makes no sense. Let's just do what we always do. Long story short, the police pulls up behind us, turns on his lights and say, hey, what are you guys doing? We're like, hey, we're riding some bikes. Whose bikes are you on? We're on some friends' bikes. What's your friend's name? I don't know. We did the Scooby-Dooby-Doo. We had no clue as to who these bikes were. And so then my mom came up and uh, talked to the officer. Hey, what's going on? He said, ma'am, your son has stolen bikes. Now, if you're from the black community, your mama give you that look and everybody knows what that looks mean. So we were more afraid of her than we were the police. And she he said, ma'am, <clears throat> I have to figure out what I'm going to do because your sons are on reportedly stolen bikes. She said, officer, please don't put handcuffs on my boys. Please don't put them in the back seats of your car. They are really good boys, and they know better. And he said, well, what's going to stop them? They will never steal anything in life from anybody else. And he said, ma'am, I don't want you to beat your children. And my mom said something very interesting. She said, I'm going to beat them before you beat them with your billy club or before you shoot them in their backs. Mm. So here we are in fifth grade. We're like, wait, what? We're riding bikes, and now we're going to get shot in the back. At that time, we had no clue as to what my mom was talking about. But today, every child in every city in America knows exactly what my mother was talking about. So that was the first encounter. And I had over 20, never been incarcerated, no criminal history. So I decided to write the book because I wanted to help young children understand their power, override their fear, and create mutual respect, shared responsibility, and accountability for both police as well as community. What an honorable objective, and what a background for what brought you to that, to write the book, Stop. Of course, what I get out of it is I want you to write about what I should do if your mama ever approaches me because I'm scared to death of her. <laughs> but instead, what we're going to do is we're going to take a break. We're going to take a break and come back with Dwayne Bryant. We're going to hear about the book that resulted from these personal experiences that he had right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. So this is Massachusetts way of saying we think it's an important program. 
We think it's important enough to continue for students and their families, and we're going to put the money up front to make sure it continues so that if the federal government does not renew it, Massachusetts will still have universal school meals. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. You love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. When I was a kid, a bowl of cereal seemed incomplete unless it was topped with sliced bananas. And we knew where our bananas came from. They came from Chiquita. Our pineapples came from Dole. And our oranges came from Sunkist. We didn't think much about it, but we do now. We want food that hasn't spent a lot of time on a truck or in a processing plant. Around here, it's hard to miss the Local Hero label. Local Hero makes it quick and easy to identify food raised right here in Western Mass. Local Hero is part of CESA, Community Involved in Sustaining Agriculture. And Local Hero is just one of the things that CESA does to help Western Mass farms thrive. CESA helps build a strong local food system, working with farmers, stores, restaurants, so all of us have fresh local food choices. Look for the bright yellow Local Hero label and think about becoming a CESA supporter. Go to buylocalfood.org, find out what CESA does and why it's worth supporting, and bon appetit. Does your partner threaten or isolate you? Do they control where you go, who you talk to, or what choices you make? Are you afraid of what they might do? You have the right to a healthy and safe relationship. If you're experiencing abuse, emotional, verbal, physical, Safe Passage is here for you. It's all free and completely confidential. Call our helpline to explore your options and plan for safety. That's 413-586-5066, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Or visit safepass.org today. Dear Massachusetts, marijuana is now legal for adult use. Keep your kids and pets safe by keeping all cannabis products in child-resistant packaging. Store your cannabis in a lockbox out of sight and out of reach from your children and teach them that cannabis and alcohol are for adults only and that prescription medications are only meant for the person they are prescribed for. Brought to you by the Northampton Prevention Coalition, working together to protect the developing brain. NorthamptonPrevents.org You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with author and speaker and master storyteller, Dwayne Bryant, who wrote Stop the Stop, Improving Police and Community Relations. And you wrote it, um, Dwayne Bryant, in, in the context of just far too many stops that resulted in treatment like we saw with George Floyd or with Breonna Taylor or not a stop, but a, uh, in that case, it was a search, uh, gone awry, Elijah McClain and others. There were these routine stops that keep ending in dreadful results like death. And usually as an African-American, more often than not male, more often than not young, who ends up dead after these encounters. So what is your recommendation in the book, The Stop, uh, on how to deal with these encounters? 
So there's one thing I talk to students about, and that is don't lose your power. When I had an encounter, the one that went viral, uh, I asked the police officer, he gave me a ticket, and I said, hey, thank you. Um, can I take a picture of you? He said, why would you do that? I said, because I have students that think that if a black man have an encounter with a white officer, it's going to lead to a fatality. And I said, I want to show them that you're not the only one with power in the stop. He said, really, who else have power? I said, well, I have power. He said, really, what's your power? I said, my word choice is my tone, my body language. Then he asked for the ticket back. And I was like, oh, shoot, I talked too much. You're going to kill me now. And he ripped it up and gave me a warning. And so although I believe most of the time, what we do is we forget our power and we engage in fear. Once fear begins to happen, that creates a, a, a fear response or what they call the amygdala hijack. Now that's in many cases. Some cases, some officers, just like the FBI has stated, um, there are many neo-Nazis and white supremacists in law enforcement. And if those officers come, then we have to engage in another level of power within the engagement. But I believe we have to create mutual respect, shared responsibility and accountability within every stop. Bill, during the break, you were, you were asking Dwayne uh, about, that's Dwayne Bryant we're talking about, you're asking him about the talk. Yeah, well, let's talk about the talk. What is it? Why is it? How important is it? Sure. Well, the talk is simply what many <clears throat> African-American parents have conversations with their children. Hey, if you get stopped by the police, if you're in a car, 10 and 2, hands on the wheel, do not be disrespectful, do not get out of the car, do not run. You know, there's so many do nots where that position is really a position of fear that many parents have. And I understand it because they want their child to get home. I believe we have to mix up the position of fear with also a position of power. Understand who you are, understand where your future is going. So therefore, you don't have the time to be fearful and also try not to allow a 20 minute encounter derail 20 years of your life. So what I also get them to understand is look at the police name tag and their badge. In chapter three of the book, The Stop, I literally took an officer to court in high school when she gave me a speeding ticket driving a four-cylinder Chevrolet Chevette at a stop sign. That made no sense at all. And when I talk to students, they don't believe they have any recourse against law enforcement, but they do. So I want them to understand that we want quality professional men and women in blue in our neighborhoods, but we don't want the ones who are going to dehumanize us, who are going to profile us because they're a liability to the community, not an asset. But if you're a young, <clears throat> excuse me, black man, you're stopped in a car, how are you possibly to know what the psychological makeup is of the white car, cop who just stopped you? Because there's good reason to be fearful. People die. Black men die in these situations. How, how, do you, how, do, how do you deal with that realistic fear? Yeah, there's not good reason to be fearful. There's great reason to be fearful. And we have enough evidence to show that it could be a 50-50 toss-up. You never know. However, even in that situation, I believe uh, pr uh, preparing, being prepared, having the conversations in advance, that would help override some of the fears that may naturally come. So again, we want to create mutual respect. Sometime the officer may come, he may or she may be escalating the situation. Don't go there no matter what. So although you have a right to be fearful, even when I'm stopped, I was in Tennessee and Mississippi just the other day and I got pulled over. I was like, oh Lord, what's gonna happen? But I knew override the fear 
override the fear, even if you have to have conversation with yourself, because ultimately you want to go home and they want to do the same thing. So it's all about being prepared, proactive in our approach to help bring calm. And I always say we have some responsibility in the encounter, but the police have more responsibility because they can take our life and our liberty by the law. Well, the other thing that uh, you say, Dwayne Bryan, in the two minutes we have left is you say allow the good within the community and law enforcement to join forces in order to expose criminal element and other socially, you know, useful phenomena. So what do you mean allow the good? Sure. So I personally believe and I have seen and I work with different law enforcement departments. You have a criminal element in the community that we always talk about but you also have a criminal element within law enforcement. I believe the majority of community members and the majority of law enforcement are good, decent, law-abiding individuals. However, what happens is the criminals in the community wants to pit the community against the police. The criminals within law enforcement wants to keep criminal police versus community. Those are the people who benefit when there's a chasm between police and community. So I believe the good of each must begin to talk to each other work things out, make sure there's respect and a relationship so that those two criminal elements will not take over and win. It, it's so important. And so how often do you speak about this um, book and your philosophy, Dwayne Bryant? How, sure. Well, work? we've been approved with Chicago Public Schools. I'm doing work in Memphis, Tennessee, two weeks a month. I would say monthly I'm having the stock conversations with young people and law enforcement, not as much as it was when the book first came out because it kind of had died down a little bit, but I think the topic will never go away in America. Well, uh, we all hope that it does. Um, and you're safe as a black man in Tennessee, as long as you're not a state representative, that's when you're imperiled in Tennessee. <laughs> but right. listen, the book, the book is the stop uh, improving police and community relations. The author and this great speaker and, st and master storyteller is Dwayne Bryant. I want to thank you so much for joining us on Talk to Talk today. Thank you, you guys. Have a great day. And listeners, thank you for joining us. Remember, don't just talk the talk. Let's all walk the walk. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5, 1400, and 1240. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. I didn't think it was possible for me to be an alcoholic. I was 24 with a good career. I thought that alcoholism only happened to middle-aged men and celebrities. I thought something else was making me sick, shaky, and afraid to face people. Then I found AA and discovered it wasn't something else. It was alcohol. AA helped me find a new life. Alcoholics Anonymous. It works. Look us up. Online and in-person meetings. For more, call 413-532-2111 or visit Western Mass AA. WHMP Northampton and 